Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. I'm your host, Fred Dews. This week, part two of my interview with Shadi Hamid on Islamists and the Middle East. But first, let's dig into Brookings history in a new segment we're calling Out of the Archives, where we find research from the last 100 years of Brookings history that touches on how we see the world today. This week's find is a Brookings report from 1960 about the implications of peaceful space travel. The U.S. space program just celebrated a milestone in exploration, the 45th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Nine years before that, in two years prior to President Kennedy's iconic speech, We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. NASA asked Brookings to produce a report on the implications of peaceful space activities for human affairs. The space program was in its infancy, so NASA was looking for a comprehensive study. Brookings delivered with analysis and advice on issues such as weather predicting systems, technological byproducts, space industries, government operations, international affairs, and foreign policy. It's an interesting report and worth looking back on to see how far we've come. The penultimate section of the long report was about the implications of a discovery of extraterrestrial life. The authors recognized the unlikelihood of face-to-face meetings within the next 20 years, but they nevertheless looked ahead to the chance that artifacts left at some point in time by these life forms might possibly be discovered through our space activities on the Moon, Mars, or Venus. A discovery of extraterrestrial life, most likely through radio contact, the authors believed, would certainly be front-page news everywhere and, as they said, might lead to a greater unity of men on Earth. Or, due to the tremendous time lag in communications, the fact that such beings existed might become simply one of the facts of life, but probably not one calling for action. The report even suggested the possibility of withholding this information from the public, depending on how their leaders might react to the information about alien contact. The report's final section covered implications of man in space and focused on the Mercury space program, which lasted from 1959 to 1963. The report noted the favorable and unfavorable attitudes prevailing about the program at the time. Some worried about the, quote, stunt characteristics of the program and about its apparent tendency to emphasize the glamorous astronauts rather than the scientific and engineering aspects and problems of the project, unquote. The report also called attention to the status of the astronauts as military men, who, despite having normal families, were able to take risks that large portions of the general public might not otherwise consider appropriate for family men. If the Mercury program is successful, argued the report, it will only be a prelude to attempts to put man on the moon and some of the planets. Social observers have speculated that manned flight to the moon or Mars might re-stimulate the American frontier spirit, thereby supplying a new form of vicarious living for a large part of the public and perhaps inspiring some to participate in more challenging activities here on Earth. Over 50 years later, we haven't made contact with aliens, but we did land 12 astronauts on the moon in what many have called one of government's most important endeavors. Visit the Brookings website to learn more about this report. If you have any feedback about this segment or have a question you'd like a Brookings scholar to answer, please send an email to bcp at brookings.edu. And now for the second part of my interview with Shadi Hamid. In part one, he talked about meeting Muslim Brotherhood members, including Mohammed Morsi, about the power of social media and about why Islamists are willing, literally, to die for their cause. We pick up the conversation in part two, where he discusses the perception that Islam and democracy are incompatible. You you write that, looking at the historical record, Islamists have a better record of respecting the democratic process than secularists or liberals do. So how do we reconcile what the evidence we're seeing on the ground about political uh, differences 
and how to resolve them. And also the, the, the sweeping um, violence that we're seeing in many countries, the caliphate in Iraq, for example. So first of all, I think it's a little bit odd to compare a religion or a belief system to a political system that is at least somewhat procedural. So Islam and democracy are, I mean, we're, we're comparing apples and oranges. So I think we have to kind of move away from that framing. But I do think that perhaps the better question is, can Islam or what people take to be Islam, because ultimately what we see today in real life isn't the kind of isn't the pure essence of Islam. We don't really know what the pure essence of Islam is. Islam exists only as Muslims interpret it and as Muslims practice it in everyday life. And from the very founding of Islam, it was mediated by men. I mean, so revealed by God, but ultimately men had to make sense of what the revelation meant. So in that sense, it's a social construction to one degree or another. Um, but Islam, as it's currently understood and practiced, is it compatible with liberal democracy? And this is where I think the distinction between liberalism and democracy becomes quite important. I do believe that the majority of Islamists are committed to the democratic process, but they might use that democratic process to pursue illiberal ends. And what I mean by that is I'm talking about a kind of social conservatism, the desire to see Islam and Islamic law play a more central role in society. And that can be very small things, symbolic things, or things that are more, I think, important in a society. So for example, um, restricting alcohol consumption, segregating the, the sexes at different levels of schooling, um, using the state or the state apparatus to promote a particular conception of religion. So it doesn't necessarily mean imposing it by through legislation, but if you had an Islamist party controlling the major ministries, they would use the soft apparatus of the state to put pressure on society and to, and to Islamize society. Um, and the educational curriculum is a very important part of this. I mean, if the Muslim Brotherhood was in charge of the Ministry of Education, you would expect to see some changes in the curriculum and how people talk about religion at a very early age. So all these things are illiberal in the sense that they prioritize um, a set of religious ideals over personal choice or, 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 or you know, people's choice to believe in religion in the way that they see fit. You see the state and the state apparatus being, being non-neutral and having a kind of ideological mission. So Islamists might say that the state should do whatever it can to promote a virtuous society, where as, as secularists in America, and I, I mean the kind of secularism in the sense of separation of church and state, I mean, the, the state should not have any kind of ideological bias, right? So that's what I'm talking about when I, when I use the word illiberal. But I mean, one of the questions that I pose in my book, I think it's a tough question to answer, and I think you know it's something worth struggling with, is, is liberal democracy the final endpoint that everyone has to sign on to? Or are we willing to accept that certain peoples and cultures might decide that they don't want to go in that same route, that they would rather be illiberal and they decide to be illiberal through the democratic process? And those aren't contained just within... Uh... Muslim countries, right? I mean, I think you might see 
illiberal democracy in Russia, perhaps, mm. or maybe Venezuela. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And also, I think more recently, we saw the democratic election of um, Narendra Modi in, in India, someone who has quite an illiberal history, but not only that, has been complicit in genocidal acts against the Muslim minority. But I think what was, what was I think, inspiring to me in following the Indian elections is that Indian Muslims who saw Modi as the, the worst thing imaginable, and may, you know, many of them knew friends or relatives who had who had been killed or suffered under you know during during the crisis in Gujarat in the early two thousands, they still were willing to say he was democratically elected. The majority of Indians got behind him. We don't have to like it, but we have to accept it. And for me, there's something inspiring about that that even when democratic outcomes are personally threatening, we say that this is the, you know, the ballot box is the arbiter. So, but even if we go, you know, so that's India, but we can also look at Israel where you have far right religious parties who are very influential um, in parliament and in government. And there's a real tension there. What should the role of religion in public life be in Israel, and we've we've struggled with this too, and this is why I think we we very easily forget our own history. We've struggled with both liberalism and democracy, and there's been a kind of push and pull, and ultimately we had to go through a lot of violence to resolve some of these fundamental questions about who is a citizen, and what does it mean to be an American. So this idea that you can have a revolution and then overnight you get to liberal democracy is not only unrealistic, it's totally ahistorical. This is not the way political change happens. So we have to readjust our expectations. So yes, Egypt did not become a liberal democracy overnight, but of course it wasn't going to. And we had to let the, de the democratic process play out. The same thing with Libya. Yes, Libya is an absolute mess right now. But what do you expect after you have five, you know, five decades plus of dictatorship, some of it quite totalitarian under Gaddafi, um, it's going to take time. And it took time with us. It doesn't mean that the Arab world has to go through 200 years of God knows what. But, you know, every society has to struggle with these questions. And we still struggle with it here in the U.S. when we're talking about, you know, abortion rights or the Hobby Lobby case, um, you know, how should... should um, should states or certain organizations be exempt from, you know, from providing contraception? I mean, there there are these debates that that still go on to this day and rise to the level of the Supreme Court. And, you know, there are certainly things in southern states that I would say are passed through the democratic process that are not liberal or do not, in other words, maximize personal freedom. But you accept that democratic outcome and you hope that over time it can improve. And that's where democracy becomes so important that democracy to me is, is in some ways at its essence about letting the opposition have recourse. They have to be able to fight back through the political process. So even if you have the worst piece of legislation passed, as long as the opposition is allowed to say, we disagree and we're going to try to make our case to our constituents and hopefully in two years, five years, whatever, we can change this legislative outcome. Now, uh, in Egypt, uh, the new president, Sisi, who was once the, the head of the armed forces, he was democratically elected. 
so what signs are you looking at in Egypt? What are you looking for as Egypt proceeds along its new path for uh, uh, further development along the democratic uh, spectrum? Well, Sisi wasn't, he was elected perhaps, but he wasn't democratically elected. I mean, he won, it's kind of embarrassing. The Egyptians should have been a little bit more careful about the final results, but he won, what was it, like 97%? So an Assad, um, Bashar al-Assad of Syria was a little bit more modest and only won about 88%. So it shows, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it was a little bit uh, laughable. But I mean, for for an election to be meaningful, the oppos- there has to be an opposition. The opposition has to have a chance to win. People should be able to campaign for their candidate, and that wasn't the case at all. And in that sense, it resembled more a coronation than an election because everyone knew that Sisi would win, and um, Sisi had the whole apparatus of the state to support his candidacy. Um, and you know, the the major opposition group, uh, the major opposition groups, I mean, anyone who is actively oppositional and who opposes the regime is either in prison, in exile, or is living in fear of being put into prison. So in that sense, there's very little room for any kind of dissent. So can you really have a real political debate or discussion when everyone's afraid of getting arrested, the night, you know, at the, at the, in the middle of the night? Um, and of course, the Muslim Brotherhood is banned now and has also been declared a terrorist organization. So we're not just talking about the old levels of repression under Mubarak, where the Brotherhood was banned, but of course, there was a margin of toleration. So they did have a presence in society. They were allowed to contest parliamentary seats. Mubarak was a more modest dictator. He never tried to erase the Brotherhood as we know it. He he didn't, first of all, he didn't think it was possible. And you could also argue that he didn't think that was in his interest because he always benefited from saying, look, there's a bunch of Muslim Brotherhood members in the parliament. What do you prefer, them or me? I'm the better alternative for the West and the international community. Sisi actually, Sisi and his backers in the Gulf and the, the Saudis and the Emiratis are very much supporting him in this respect. He is trying to deliver a decisive blow to the Muslim Brotherhood. And that's what's scary. I mean, that it's reached this, this again, this very existential level where there seems to be very little room for compromise or for any kind of potential reintegration of the Islamist opposition in Egyptian politics. So what kinds of, uh, what kinds of signs are you looking for that might indicate it's about to really get worse than it is? Or, or is there any hope that it could get better? So it depends what we mean by getting worse. I mean, we've already had the worst mass, ki- according to Human Rights Watch, the worst mass killing in modern Egyptian history, which we discussed earlier on August 14th. So that that's, you know, I don't know, will, it, will there be a worse massacre than that? I don't think so. But will we see a continuation of repression? Yes. And there aren't really any signs that CC is letting up. I mean, let's let's also keep in mind that here's a military man. That's all he's known his whole life. Um, he prioritizes the use of force. He is not someone who is schooled in matters of political compromise and negotiation. Also, I think what's important to realize is that there's also a lot of popular support for Sisi, maybe not as much as people originally assumed, but he does have a base. And that base is pretty hardline, and they want him to be repressive. And this was what, what was really remarkable for me when I, w- I, w- I was in Rabah doing interviews a couple days before the massacres. I was also talking to people 
just, um, you know, Egyptian friends and colleagues who I knew who I would describe as liberal and very well educated and westernized and all of that. And to hear them saying things like, well, what's Sisi waiting for? He should go in and wipe them out and kind of calling for the mass slaughter of their fellow countrymen. I, you know, you read about that in grad school, you know, the rise of fascism and all that and um, in the early 20th century. But to actually see, see people you know and care about expressing these sentiments and it was a kind of so usually when you usually when you want to kill people you're, you feel a little bit bad about it like there's a kind of shame what was really interesting about this is that there wasn't any shame people were saying this openly and publicly saying they deserve to be killed and then after Rabah happened justifying what was very clearly a mass killing so that that's some pretty bad news there um Let's turn. Let's find some good news. Is there a good news story in the Middle East three and a half or so years after the uh, Arab Spring uprisings began? Something that maybe inspires you, or the West should be paying more attention to? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We got to have something to inspire us, uh, and maybe that's where Tunisia comes in as the relative bright spot in the region. So I, I'm relative. You know, I, I see some darker undercurrents in Tunisia. I think there's still a lot of things that have to be worked out. There still are fundamental ideological divides between Islamists and secularists, but at least they've agreed to work their differences out through the democratic process. And Tunisia also has a very big advantage. They don't have an interventionist military, so the prospect of a military coup is is very unlikely. Um, so that's something we have to watch, and I think we, the international community has to do what they can to support the Tunisian transition going forward. But to be honest, beyond Tunisia, I have a lot of trouble seeing bright spots. I mean, part of this, too, is, is looking at the U.S. role, and, and the U.S. has really struggled to respond to the changes in the region. And I think we can't just say, well, here are a bunch, and I think this is sometimes a tendency in American discourse they say here are a bunch, you know, here are a lot of Arabs. They're killing each other. There are these ancient sectarian hatreds, and to kind of say that it's so deep seated that there's nothing we can do about it. First of all, I think that's a total cop out. But it also, I think, you know, it it absolves us of our own role and responsibility that we are not innocent bystanders in this conflict. We are active participants, and for decades we've made it worse. And if we look at the rise of sectarianism, the Iraq war in 2003, you know, unleashed a lot of those things that were perhaps already simmering underneath the surface. But our policies act, you know, very much exacerbated these trends for the worse, um, you know, and our, our failure to act in Syria. And I, w I was a, a supporter of limited military intervention in the form of targeted airstrikes and the creation of safe zones in early 2012, I think that if we had acted then, we could have at least forestalled the rise of these radical groups like ISIS that benefited from the power vacuum, that the longer this conflict went on, the more they gained the upper hand. And this was precisely the argument that we were making, that the longer we wait, the more it's going to be a disaster. And we're going to rue the day and it's going to haunt us and it's haunting us right now. And now it's, I think, too late. I mean, there comes a point where so much damage is done. You can try to put out the fires all you want, but you can't undo the past several years. So in that sense, I'm 
But look, I mean, if I can kind of spin it a little bit more optimistically that at some point violence can have a clarifying effect. And let me let me so if people if you have so much civil conflict and even civil war and different parties are killing each other, at some point they're going to say, especially if they can't defeat each other, in a lot of these countries, you can't totally defeat the other side because you're part of the same society. So at some point, people are going to have to realize that there's only one option, that they have to live together and work out their differences through politics. And again, that doesn't mean that they have to stop hating each other. But I mean, the Flemish and the Walloons in, in Belgium hate each other and or at least strongly dislike each other. Let's put it that way. But they essentially live in separate communities and they say, well, we are all part of Belgium and we're going to find a way to make this work. And that's what Europe had to figure out over a long period of religious and political conflict that they got exhausted. All the war, all the conflict exhausted them. We can look at Latin America in the 1970s with the dirty wars in Chile and Argentina between socialist and right-wing pro-military groups and you know there was a lot of there was a lot of death and suffering but at some point they said never again this is too much it's enough and it's tearing apart our society and we can't live like this forever so I don't know how long it's going to take, but I do think that at some point Egyptians are going to look back at this very dark blot on their history and say, what happened to us? How did we lose our humanity? And there's going to have to be an accounting. There's going to have to be truth and reconciliation. And that's going to be a difficult process. It's going to take time to heal to heal those wounds in society. Um, but I think it's possible and it, it can happen. The question is how many people have to die before we get to that point? Well, um, let's wrap up by uh, just talking about where you're going from here in your own research. Now, you're based back in the United States after many years abroad. Um, what kind of research are you are you doing? What methods are you using? Where do you go from here? Yeah, sure. So w what I'll be focusing on in the coming months um, there's two projects in particular that, that, that uh, are worth mentioning. One is looking at the challenges of post-coup reintegration. In other words, after a military coup, how does the ousted group reintegrate into politics? What are the different paths available to these opposition groups? And obviously, you have arms, armed insurrection. You have returning to the political process and participating in parliament, or you have nonviolent civil disobedience. So there's a variety of options to so trying to understand what those options are and what makes a success of one more likely than, than others and so on. And um, we'll be looking at um, comparisons with Latin American cases um, and trying to understand what we can learn from Chile and Argentina and other contexts where, um, where you really had this, this kind of post-coup challenge. Um, and, and, and also, uh, and this is a big part. Of, so I'm I'm part of the project on U.S. relations with the Islamic world, and I'll I'll be working with my colleague Will McCants on looking at how Islamists are adapting after the coup. Um, this is a the coup in Egypt was a defining moment in the Islamist narrative, 
and you know it will be that and it will be you know we'll look back at last year at last July 3rd 2013 as one of these key inflection points in the region and not just for the brotherhood in Egypt but for Islamist groups across the Middle East that are trying to make sense of what happened they're trying to learn lessons and but the lessons are different and varied so to kind of look more broadly not just at the brotherhood in Egypt but to look at the very diverse range of Islamist actors, whether the more mainstream brotherhood types or the more Salafi types, and trying to understand how this process of adaptation is going to happen. So what I, I'll be doing field research in the areas, uh, so the Islamists in opposition now, the Islamist opposition in Egypt is obviously no longer in Egypt because they, they're either in prison or they've been forced into exile. So most of them are in Doha, Istanbul, and London. So I plan to do some research trips to those three cities and spend a lot of time trying to understand the experience of exile and the challenges of trying to trying to lead a movement of opposition from outside the country. And you also see interesting tensions between the conservative old guard that's in exile um, based in a place like Doha, and the younger, more revolutionary types who are the ones fighting the fight and protesting on a daily or weekly basis inside of Egypt and, you know, risking death or imprisonment on a regular basis. So there are just so many fascinating trends and developments that we're going to have to watch very closely. And I look forward to, to, to trying to make sense of, of all of that. Well, we look forward to you trying to make sense of that, too. Um, Shadi, I, I really appreciate your time in this very thought-provoking podcast, and I'll just uh, leave us with the words of alma mater, Hoya Saxa. Hoya Saxa, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. A real pleasure. To learn more about Shadi and his research, visit brookings.edu. Finally today, I'd like to thank Zachary Kulzer, our fearless editor and producer, Elena Saxena, our researcher and intern extraordinaire, Jessica Pavone, who designed our wonderful logo, and Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahin for managing the podcast on our website. If you'd like to hear more from the Brookings Cafeteria, subscribe on iTunes. You can also visit our website at brookings.edu bcp, where I post notes from the shows, provide links to the research I've mentioned, and where you can listen to our entire library of episodes. If you have any comments for us, send an email to bcp at brookings.edu.